Uh, I am here to uh, serve two purposes, uh, to introduce you a little bit to the practice group if you have not been introduced to it before, and to uh, introduce uh, the, your moderator, uh, Judge Thapar. So on the first topic, at the uh, Environment Practice Group, we run uh, an excellent series of programs, uh, podcasts, teleforums on a variety of uh, topics uh, because environmental laws span and the constitutional law issues that it reaches are so broad. Uh, and uh, publications, and lots of in-person programs either at the law schools or that are held by practice groups either here in D.C. or uh, out in uh, the rest of the country. Uh, and uh, I think uh, I've never found that I've attended a program that was poor in quality, so I urge you to uh, seek out opportunities if you're interested in environmental law and property rights to attend those. Uh, and um, if you have interest in working with the practice group in some capacity, either in setting up a uh, podcast, in writing an article, uh, hosting a debate, and the like, I'd uh, urge you to get in touch with either me. I'm, I'm Jay Clark, J-C-L-A-R-K, at Kirkland.com, K-I-R-K-L-A-N-D. And Dean Reuter, uh, who is an officer of the uh, Federal Society and runs the practice groups generally, You'll find him on the website, and you could obviously contact him if you were interested in working for the practice groups as well. Uh, so with, uh, with that underway, let me introduce uh, your esteemed moderator to you, and he will introduce uh, the panel members. Amul uh, Roger Thapar is a newly appointed judge to the United States Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit, uh, he replacing Judge Boyce Martin. Disagreements between Judge Boggs, for whom I clerked on the Sixth Circuit, and Judge Martin were not uncommon. I suspect that Judge Thapar and Judge Boggs will more often agree. Uh, judge Thapar is a native of Troy, Michigan. He was a judge in the Eastern District of Kentucky from 2008 to 2017, and he has an impressive legal resume even before that. He practiced at both Williams and Connolly and Squire Sanders, was an assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of Ohio, a general counsel for a private company, and then U.S. attorney in the Eastern District of Kentucky uh, before becoming confirmed to the district court in 2008. And if that were not enough, he has taught at a variety of law schools at Georgetown, at Vanderbilt, the University of Virginia, and Northern Kentucky University. And, uh, and with that background and his current status as a federal uh, appellate judge, it should come as no surprise that uh, there has been some buzz about whether if there's another Supreme Court vacancy, Judge Thapar might be asked uh, about that. Judge Thapar will be introducing your panel members to you uh, today, but let me just say briefly who they are. We're talking about a quartet of professors, Professor uh, Jonathan Adler, Professor Donald Koshin, Professor Robert Percival, and Professor Michael Vandenberg. And with that, I will leave the dais and turn things over to Judge Thapar. Thank you very much. It is clear from my bio that my wife is right. Every time I hear it, she says I'm the Forrest Gump of law. I keep running through the profession and good things keep happening and everyone wonders why. Um, but in any event, uh, I have held a job as a district court judge for a while, but I'm proud to be a circuit judge and I'm proud to be here. I want to put a plug in for the podcast that the Federalist Society does. Um, I think they're fantastic. I often listen to them and 
they were just referenced, but I often listen to them while I work out. So, and you too can then listen to them work out and make your mind and body better all at the same time. Um, it's, it's an honor to be here and to introduce the panel today. I wanna talk, I'm gonna give a few brief comments. Uh, Dean, who asked me to mention his name as many times as possible, so I've worked it in. In case you see him, please let him know that. At, oh, good asked me to give, said I could give a few minutes of comments and then introduce the brains on the panel. So, um, as you may know, uh, when you think about the administrative state, we often talk about Federalist 47 and what James Madison said. We talk about uh, all the separation of powers, everything that's going on. What we don't often talk about is the history of where the administrative state came from. And to me, that, that is very important in understanding why we are where we are today. Woodrow Wilson was the grandfather of the administrative state. Uh, what we know about Woodrow Wilson, and you've heard it recently, is he was an elitist um, that believed that he knew better than everyone else and did not trust the American people. And we know this not only from what was going on at the time he conceived the administrative state, but from his own words. And let me explain. First, Woodrow Wilson, the elitist. He held very low regard for African Americans, women, and immigrants. How do I know this? He talked about blacks as ignorant voters. He talked, and I'm quoting him, he talked about immigrants as men of the lowest class. And when he ran against Teddy Roosevelt, he opposed women's suffrage. When you think about this backdrop, you see that what Woodrow Wilson was at his core, and we know this from how he conceived the administrative state, was an anti-populist. He did not like that what was happening at the time, the 15th Amendment giving blacks the right to vote, the 17th Amendment giving direct, the American people direct election of senators, and the 19th Amendment giving women the right to vote. He was fearful that the the American people would paralyze government. Uh, so what he did is he started working on the administrative state. And he looked and studied what was going on in Europe and in particular Germany. And he quickly validated in his own mind his own belief that the populace of the country could not run the country. In his mind, a popular elected branch of government legislating would be a hindrance to an efficient government. Moreover, Wilson believed that separation of powers was an antiquated concept from a bygone era that also hindered the efficiency of government and in particular the administrative state. Wilson said as much when he said, quote, government must do whatever experience permits or the times demand. Moreover, unlike the founders, Wilson believed that the government conferred rights on us, not the other way around. By this backward belief of our rights, he could easily justify a strong view of the administrative states. So he studied with Frank Goodnow how to build an administrative state that was not subservient to the national political will of the people. His plan was simple. Stack the agencies with elitists who were educated at what he perceived as the best schools in America. Having not been educated at one of those schools, I strongly disagree. And they would have the power. So delegation was absolutely necessary. The best way to run the country, in his mind, 
was for the agencies to design the laws and execute them. When you understand this history, you can see how effectively the administrative state that Wilson envisioned is now in place. While he could not have foreseen the judicial and legislative abdication when it comes to the administrative state, I have no doubt that he dreamt of how to make it happen. And one only needs to read the work of Philip Hamburger, Gary Lawson, or countless other academics to see that it has. And if the academics are not your cup of tea, no offense to my panelists, then one can read Justice Thomas's thoughtful 2015 opinions on administrative law or Justice Gorsuch's now famous concurrence. We truly have become the country Woodrow Wilson envisioned. But the question remains, should we be? To turn to our panel, what is clear in this area of law in particular is that the history of the administrative straight shows that by the courts and Congress abdicating their roles and giving the agency general imperatives like right appropriate rules, they have taken advantage of that. One only need read the syllabus to Michigan v. EPA to see what's going on. Could you imagine an American populace agreeing to, for the power plants to cost $9.6 billion a year for a four to $6 million benefit? Because we all know that's passed on to us. The cost is passed on to us. So now it comes, it's my great honor to introduce our panel. And I'm going to be brief with their bios, because you can get on the internet these days and read everything you want to know about someone. But Professor Percival is the Robert F. Stanton Professor of Law and Director of Environmental Law Program at the University of Maryland. He went to the second best law school in the Bay Area, Stanford. And, and clerked both on the Ninth Circuit and for Justice Byron White. <coughs> Professor Adler is in my neck of the woods at Case Western University. We are proud to have him there in the heartland. He blogs often on the Volokh Conspiracy and deserve, deservedly received the distinguished Paul M. Banter Award from the Federalist Society. He went to an OK Law School um, or I'm sorry, an OK undergrad, correct? You went to Yale for undergrad, but a great law school. George Mason. <laughs> Professor Koken is the Associate Dean for Research and Faculty Development and Professor of Law at Chapman University. He's published more than 35 scholarly articles and essays in well-respected journals. And in 2016, he was elected as a member of the American Law Institute. And finally, Professor Vandenberg, who's been working hard to get his presentation ready for you all and is now here, is the David Daniels Allen Distinguished Chair of Law at Vanderbilt University. He's an award-winning teacher that's published numerous articles. And prior to joining Vanderbilt, he was a partner at Latham & Watkins in Washington, DC, and served as chief of staff of the EPA from 1993 to 95. So we will start with Professor Percival. Thanks, Judge. Uh, since we're discussing Congress, I would be remiss if I didn't make my uh, usual complaint about the fact that uh, I've now lived 
in the District of Columbia for 39 years, and I don't have any voting representation in Congress, even though they like to meddle in what the district does. It would be great if sometime the Federal Society did a program about how we can correct this fundamentally unfair aspect of our structure of government. Um, in preparing this uh, talk, I went back and looked at the data on how often we've had divided government. And throughout the history of the development of environmental law, the environmental statutes have been the product of compromises between the two political parties. This is only the sixth Congress in the last 25 Congresses that we have the President and both houses of Congress controlled by the same political party. Most of the fundamental environmental laws we have today were the product of overwhelming bipartisan approval in Congress. The National Environmental Policy Act in 1970, when Nixon was president, the Democrats controlled Congress. The Clean Air Act in 1970, Clean Water Act in 1972, Endangered Species Act in 1973, 1974, the Safe Drinking Water Act, the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act, 1976, the Resource Conservation Recovery Act, the Toxic Substances Control Act, and then Congress started reauthorizing these with the 1977 amendments to the Clean Air Act, and then the Superfund legislation that came in 1980. Um, and we've seen uh, since then that uh, while we now are in a state that looks like legislative gridlock compared to the overwhelming approval of these laws, it still is possible if the stars align to get good environmental legislation approved by compromise among the both political parties. Uh, during the Reagan era, uh, the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act was amended in 1984 by the Hazardous and Solid Waste Amendments of 1984. And a lot of these statutes during the Reagan era were made more prescriptive because of the fear that Reagan wanted to roll back the environmental laws, which ultimately kind of backfired. His effort, for example, to put more lead back into gasoline ultimately resulted in when the data was looked at, an agreement that we should get rid of all lead in gasoline, which has been one of the most spectacularly successful environmental regulations adopted throughout the world except in, I think it's Libya, Yemen, and maybe Afghanistan now, and economists estimate that that's produced trillions of dollars in net benefits every year for society. Uh, in 1986, we amended the Superfund legislation to speed up the cleanup process, uh, and in uh, uh, 1990, after the Exxon Valdez oil spill, we got the Oil Pollution Act. A lot of times when these laws were being considered, the regulatory targets had cries of doom, the economy was gonna collapse, particularly after the 1990 Clean Air Act amendments. And instead, history has demonstrated that these have produced enormous benefits for us, and they're the reason why we wake up every day and our skies are clear, our water is clean compared to the situation in China where they're struggling with these routine airpocalypses where they have to shut everything down. And it's currently estimated that about 1.6 million Chinese die every year 
from exposure to air pollutants. The 1990 Clean Air Act amendments were probably the last time we got both parties together and they had to negotiate a lot of it in secret. They kind of kept the lobbyists out. President George H.W. Bush had said he was going to be the environmental president. And with only about 20 dissenting votes in the House, virtually unanimous approval of legislation that's had really far-reaching effects in updating an antiquated statute at the time, resolving what had been a 13-year legislative gridlock over how do we deal with the acid rain problem, innovative provisions such as emissions trading to reduce sulfur dioxide emissions, and the studies that have been done of that say that that has saved so many hundreds of thousands of lives that it's generated tremendous net benefits for society. Now, today we're commonly viewed as in a state of legislative gridlock on environmental issues, and yet I wanted to point to three laws that have been the product of bipartisan compromise. And in each case, it was largely the result of something that forced both sides to the table. Now, in the 70s, there really weren't both sides. Uh, everyone wanted, knew we needed environmental legislation, and it was almost as though some have said, uh, you know, President Nixon was competing with Senator Muskie, the head of the Environment Committee, uh, who was thought to be the likely Democratic nominee in 1972. And so they were East trying to come up with more extreme environmental proposals. Nixon actually said he wanted to phase out the internal combustion engine in 10 years. When Al Gore proposed that in his book, uh, he was, for, for doing that in 25 years, he was attacked for that during the presidential campaign of 2000. But these three uh, major uh, updates of the laws were first the Food Quality Protection Act in 1996, which uh, was adopted by a Republican Congress. Republicans controlled both houses of Congress. We had a Democratic president at the time, President Clinton. And what happened there was the agricultural chemical industry was scared to death that some court rulings were going to result in the Delaney Clause, which bans any carcinogens as a food additive being applied to pesticide residues on food. And that brought them to the table. The environmentalists were afraid that in response to that, EPA was going to relax a lot of the regulations. And so they got together and they agreed on comprehensive legislation. Same thing happened that year with respect to the Safe Drinking Water Act that was amended in 1996 to answer concerns of small cities that it might be very expensive for them to comply with every part of the act. Uh, one thing I noticed, I travel to China a lot. I've been there 41 times now. And even in the luxury hotels in China, you cannot drink the water from the tap. Safe Drinking Water Act, some have said, well, why should the federal government be dictating to cities how safe their water has to be? But we live in an incredibly mobile society. I grew up in Iowa, went to college in Minnesota, went to law school in California, moved to DC. I work in Maryland. Anywhere you go in the United States, you don't have to fear that this is going to be like some third world country where you're not going to be able to drink the water. Most recently, I think people were truly astounded that Congress, with only, I think, one dissenting vote in June 2016, comprehensively updated 
the Toxic Substances Control Act with the Lautenberg Chemical Safety for the 21st Century Act. How did this come about? Well, our chemical regulation law, the Toxic Substances Control Act, got so outdated that it was not nearly as good as China's law. And the chemical industry recognized that. In August 2015, I was speaking to a group of chemical industry executives in Shanghai, China, about you know, our Tosca and China's chemical regulation law. And I said, you know, your law, at least on paper, is a lot better than ours. You require a lot more testing and assurances that stuff is safe. At the break, one of the executives came up to me and said, just between you and me, our law looks good on paper, but it's never enforced. That night, there was an incredible chemical explosion in Tianjin that killed hundreds of people and caused billions of dollars in damage, and I realized right away the, that he was right. So um, I you know, just want to conclude by saying compromise is still possible if we can get the parties together. The problem is we're now in the situation where there's this political campaign to demonize everything EPA did during the Obama administration and try to reverse so much of it. Uh, last week, a prominent senator said, if we could just have a secret ballot, we could probably get a carbon tax enacted by Congress. Uh, and that's because uh, our representatives are so fearful of getting attacked if they do something that seems like it might be progressive on the environment. I hope that will not continue to be the case in the future. Thank you. Thank you. It's a, a pleasure to be here. Um, I won't mention Dean Reuter's name too many times in my talk. Um, but it's always a pleasure to be uh, with the Federal Society to talk about environmental law. Yesterday, we heard from EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt and talking about what is quite clearly an aggressive agenda to try and alter the state of environmental law in the United States, to, in his words, go back to basics, to foster greater state leadership and flexibility in the implementation of environmental law. Now, as those of you who are familiar with my work on environmental regulation and on federalism in particular, you know that I'm quite sympathetic to that general agenda. Uh, existing environmental law is too prescriptive and too centralized, uh, and as a consequence, often gets in the way of us having the sort of environmental protections uh, that the American people want and that are also uh, consistent with other values that we hold dear. The problem is, is that it's hard to do. And what I want to try and briefly explain in, in the next several minutes uh, is that it is particularly difficult, given the structure of environmental law, uh, for the EPA administrator, any EPA administrator, to make dramatic changes in the way environmental laws are implemented and enforced, uh, and that if efforts are, are, are tried uh, to make such changes from within the EPA without the participation of Congress, uh, the likely end result of that is not some dramatic positive change in environmental law, uh, but rather losses in the courts uh, and court orders that require the agency perhaps to do even more of the things uh, that the current administrator doesn't like uh, than it has to do now. A little bit of history. Uh, this is not the first administration that has wanted to change the way certain parts of environmental law uh, are done. It's not the first administration uh, to believe perhaps correctly, that those changes are hard to get through Congress. 
Uh, I don't think there's much disagreement on this room that other than uh, when it comes, other than judicial nominations, it's not clear. Well, under the, other than judicial nominations uh, and CRA regulatory disapproval resolutions, uh, it's not clear uh, what the current Congress uh, is capable of doing. Uh, and we've had prior administrations that sought environmental reforms in Congress, and once those reforms were unsuccessful, tried to do things administratively. The Clinton administration, for example, did this with public lands policy. After the first uh, Clinton budget went down uh, to bipartisan opposition uh, in the Clinton administration's first two years, uh, the Clinton administration, uh, under Secretary Babbitt's leadership in the Interior Department, sought to try and achieve administratively many of the reforms uh, that they knew they could not get through even a Democratic Congress. The Bush administration had an ambitious proposal to remake the Clean Air Act, the so-called Clear Skies Initiative, uh, when it was clear that that could not be passed through Congress in a way that was consistent with what the Bush administration wanted, uh, the Bush administration adopted a series of administrative reforms uh, trying to do uh, those same things administratively. The Obama administration as well, when it could not get climate legislation uh, through Congress, uh, sought to use the administrative power the EPA has uh, to apply regulations to greenhouse gases and in some cases sought to uh, alter the structure of, of the administrative requirements in the process. Particularly in the context of the Clean Air Act, these efforts to act administratively without congressional cooperation typically have not ended well. By some counts, the Bush administration lost as many as 30 challenges to its Clean Air Act administrative efforts, most of them in, a D, in, in the D.C. Circuit, most of them on a D.C. Circuit, I should note, that was not known or did not have the reputation at the time of being a particularly liberal court or particularly sympathetic uh, to regulation. Uh, but the Bush administration lost case after case in its clean, of its Clean Air Act reforms because the Clean Air Act, as written, is not as flexible and is not as malleable as the Bush administration wanted it to be. And the efforts to remake air pollution policy administratively were not consistent with statutory texts. The Obama administration had a similar experience when, through the timing and tailoring rule, it sought to remake the standards for what makes a stationary source subject uh, to the Clean Air Act's requirements, and the Supreme Court rejected that in the UARG decision. The reality is, is that when the EPA tries to aggressively remake the standards of environmental law, it doesn't matter whether or not what the EPA is, do, what the EPA is doing makes policy sense. The Obama administration is correct that it's insane to try and apply some of the Clean Air Act's numerical thresholds to the emissions of greenhouse gases. The Bush administration was correct that for many pollutants, trying to adopt more flexible and market-oriented approaches to emission reductions would be more efficient and more cost-effective than the alternative. But where the statute doesn't allow those sorts of changes and those sorts of measures, uh, courts correctly strike them down. For some of the reasons that Professor Percival already noted, uh, our environmental statutes are particularly pres prescriptive. They contain many requirements of what agents, for what agencies are supposed to do. In the case of the EPA, I think it's fair to say, as many EPA administrators of both parties have lamented, that Congress has told them to do far more than they have the resources or personnel to ever achieve. They don't have a lot of flexibility to set their own priorities and determine their own goals. Under many provisions of many various statutes, if certain scientific or other findings are made, certain regulatory measures must follow. The EPA does not have a choice by that. And if courts decide to interpret the scope of those statutes broadly, as the Supreme Court did in Massachusetts versus EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency has relatively little choice 
but to operationalize the relevant regulatory provisions accordingly. If that were not enough, despite the best efforts of the late Justice Scalia, the citizen supervisions combined with relatively loose standing rules mean that when the EPA doesn't aggressively enforce its various regulatory requirements, citizen groups can go into court and force the EPA's hand. It is relatively easy for folks at the NRDC or the Sierra Club or any other group to find provisions in the various environmental statutes that are not being enforced and to get court orders requiring the agency to act. And that's something that we also see time and again. In fact, Carol Browner and the Clinton administration lamented that much of what on a day-to-day -day basis her agency had to do was not a function of her priorities and what the Clinton administration wanted to do, but a function of what court orders were in place uh, based on prior litigation telling the EPA uh, to fulfill a statutory mandate, again, in a context in which the EPA typically has more requirements that it must fulfill than it has the money or the staff uh, to implement. What this means is that if we want to change the way environmental law is done in this country, and again, as people know, I certainly believe we should, uh, Congress is the place that we should turn for most of these changes. On, on top of all these problems, it's important to remember that where there is statutory room, and in those few areas where there is opportunity to make changes in the existing regulatory uh, environment, uh, it's not something that can be done simply by uh, taking out your phone or your pen. An executive order is not sufficient to undo the product of an arduous notice and comment rulemaking. An executive order can tell an agency to begin that process, but it takes far, far more than that. It's what I tell my students in administrative law, that as a general matter, however long it took the agency to en enact a regulation, you should assume it's going to take that long to undo it that the more complex and detailed a notice and comment rulemaking is that put a regulatory measure in place, as a general rule, the more time consuming and arduous the rulemaking process will be uh, to reverse course. And so that means if you have something like the Clean Power Plan, it's not enough to simply say, well, we're not sure about the statutory interpretation that the prior administration adopted, and there certainly are questions about certain aspects of the statutory interpretation uh, that underlie uh, the Obama administration's Clean Power Plan. It takes a tremendous amount of effort uh, to, go through the, to go through all of the various concerns, policy concerns and statutory interpretation concerns, and address them adequately so that uh, the agency's position can be changed. And that's difficult under normal times. It's even more difficult when, as in the current situation, you have an agency that I think is widely understood is understaffed, uh, both in terms of uh, Senate-confirmed personnel as, as well uh, as, as uh, political appointees uh, for positions that don't require Senate confirmation. Changing these sorts of policies is like trying to change the direction of a tanker. You have a tremendous amount of weight and inertia sending you in one direction. Uh, it takes all hands on deck to change course, and it's something that if it's done sloppily or too quickly, the likely end result is an adverse court judgment. Two years later, you can find yourself right back where you started with the added obstacle uh, of a court order uh, telling you to do the opposite of what you wanted to do. So if we're unhappy with the structure, it's certainly important to have uh, an EPA administrator and, and helpful to have an EPA administrator that understands the problems, but the real solutions ultimately are going to have to come from Congress. That Congress is going to have to do the hard work of either changing the underlying statutes 
taking seriously the idea that when statutory authorization expires for a regulatory program that Congress might be obligated to, to renew and reconsider it, or perhaps to enact broader reforms such as some of the sorts of regulatory reforms that Congress has considered, or reforms that would uh, create clear opportunities for flexibility that, lack, that the statutes lack right now. The reality is, is that environmental, changing environmental law without Congress is not easy to do, and it's an effort that's not likely uh, to end well. Thank you. Good morning. Thank you to Dean, to Jeff, and to the Federal Society for inviting me here to speak today and for organizing this wonderful gathering. And thank you to uh, Judge Thapar and uh, my fellow panelists for uh, engaging with, this, with me in this conversation. My remarks today follow uh, similarly along the line of a critique of Congress and its abdication of its responsibility through examples from the environmental and natural resources space, where the problem of congressional acquiescence in the demise of its own power is particularly acute. I want to spend these few minutes discussing uh, the necessity of legislative clarity as well as the necessity of legislative intervention, but why we are also often not seeing either. The framers relied on institutional self-interest as, as a feature of a well-functioning system of separated powers. In Federalist Number 9, Hamilton noted that, quote, the regular distribution of power into distinct departments are means and powerful means by which the excellencies of Republican government may be retained and its imperfections lessened or avoided. Similarly, James Madison observed, particularly in Federalist Numbers 47 and 51, that there must be auxiliary precautions that, that go beyond parchment barriers, that recognize human nature and its tendency toward aggrandizement. The framers sought to craft a constitution that would use human nature against itself, creating incentives for each branch of government to jealously guard its constitutional prerogatives from attack. Thus, Madison explained number 51, as many of you know, quote, ambition must be uh, able to counteract ambition. Quote, the great security against a gradual concentration of the several powers in the same department consists in giving to those who administer each department the necessary constitutional means and personal motives to resist encroachments of the others. Were the framers wrong or naive? The system of reciprocal guarding seems to have broken down. The administrative state has grown while Congress has, in a variety of ways, either passively allowed this distortion without resistance or, at times, even encouraged a power shift where certain policies, including environmental ones, could be generated without Congress. Congress sometimes embraces a larger administrative role because it can generate gains from passing broad legislation while avoiding internalizing the costs of law's application. Let's take those who want a more aggressive regulatory approach, perhaps those who cast dispersions on the Trump administration and its mindset toward regulatory constraint. As a result of the captive narrative of the powerful administrative state, executive decisions to exercise discretion not to act get blamed on the executive, when a different framing of the same phenomenon could be, one, Congress deserves blame for giving agencies enough discretion to choose not to act, and two, Congress deserves blame because it is not legislated to force action. Now consider those that uh, want a more restrained regulatory approach, including those that frowned upon aggressive Clinton or Obama era efforts. An agency's choice to use discretion to interpret broad and often ambiguous statutory language to enlarge its mandate again gets blamed on the executive agency. When a different framing of the same phenomenon could be one, Congress deserves the blame for giving agencies enough discretion to choose to act, 
and two, Congress deserves blame because it is not legislated to clarify that the agency does not have the statutory authority to do so. From the perspective of separation of powers, uh, this is all incredibly uh, distorted. But from the perspective of Congress, it's rather brilliant. Congress is an institution and, congressional, uh, and congresspersons can avoid blame because it's not our fault, the agency did it. Or they can take credit. They can explain the agency's actions as a result of the heroic and wise efforts of, of, of Congress to guide the agency through its preferences and, and that, that Congress's preferences were aligned with the agency's choice. Or they can lambast the uh, rogue agency's deviant interpretations. And when the agency is const uh, constrained and can't act, as, as Jonathan pointed out, oftentimes Congress does not step in and give them the authority that they need to achieve the policy preferences that exist, again, because of this uh, disengagement. Thus, in environmental law and elsewhere, we see a distinct kind of congressional ambition to shield itself from accountability by abdicating lawmaking authority supplanting the framers' anticipated ambition to erect strong fences around their claim on exclusive legislative authority. The authors of the Federalists and the Framers also understood that as one branch's ambition to guard its powers wavers, then the other, other's ambition to seize powers will take over. It's easy to beat up administrative agencies after, uh, for being too big and assertive, but can we really blame them? Agency officials who take openings that Congress is willing to give are rational power and influence maximizers within a competitive separation of powers system. Now, I'll spend the last couple of minutes on uh, talking about some natural resources and environmental uh, examples that play out this, these constitutional distortions. The Antiquities Act of 1906 provides in part that, quote, the president may, in the president's discretion, declare by public proclamation historic landmarks, historic and prehistoric structures, and other objects of historic or scientific interest that are situated on land owned or controlled by the federal government to be national monuments. The Antiquities Act was primarily intended as an anti-looting statute that would allow the, the president to prevent plunder and irreparable loss of artifacts and other national treasures. But the loose and poorly drafted language of the Antiquities Act does not compel such a limited mandate. We should not be surprised that presidents interpret broad language broadly, and that President Obama used it to designate more than 550 million acres of, uh, uh, of uh, federal land and water as national monuments, double the amount of any preceding president. Most presidents feel similarly uh, unconstrained by the original purposes of the act, instead accepting the invitation to preservationist power afforded by the ill-drafted statute. The text itself allows that. With the massive Obama-era monuments, po popular outcry did not blame Congress for creating the Antiquities Act, and we saw few blaming Congress for not passing laws to limit the Antiquities Act. The blame went to President Obama for his interpretation of the Congress's poorly drafted words. The exception to congressional irresponsibility in this particular space may uh, be uh, playing out in Congress right now with H.R. 3990, the National Monument Creation and Protection Act, which passed uh, out of the Natural Resources Committee by a vote of 23 to 17 last month. I'll be happy to talk about that in the Q&A as well as a few problems that I see uh, with it. Let me turn also uh, as a sec second example to the Clean Water Act and the meaning of the phrase waters of the United States, or WOTUS as many of you may know it. Uh, again, we see another example of the drafting causing the problem. The Clean Water Act gives the EPA and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers jurisdiction to regulate discharges and other activities related to navigable waters, which the CWA defines as waters of the United States, but waters of the United States is, there not, is not thereafter defined in the actual act. 
across the 40 plus, uh, past 40 plus years, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court has generated a convoluted ping-pong match of opinions volleying between wide and narrow interpretation of waters of the United States, uh, often compelled, though, uh, in doing so by and driven by the agencies themselves politicizing the term. Yet Congress has not intervened with corrective amendments that assert its authority to, to define such a critical term. In 2015 rulemaking uh, that I probably don't need to tell many people about in this room, uh, EPA and the Corps happily exploited the, the judicial uncertainty and the legislative uh, ambiguity uh, by adopting a meaning that dramatically broad and, and, and uh, gave a dramatically broad definition to ours in the United States. The 2015 rule has been stayed by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit. The Trump administration is, is currently engaged in rulemaking in the process. And again, uh, I'll leave to Q&A an opportunity to discuss the details of where that stands right now. So I'll just end here with uh, the, a few thoughts on why the problems are particularly acute in environmental policy. Quite simply, these problems are acute in environmental realm because environmental policy involves highly transparent, hot button issues generating unique optics through narratives that are accessible to almost anyone, accessible to almost anyone, and the debate can, plays out in that sense and, and, pr and creates pressure on Congress because it's not just an expert issue. Environmental issues are presented in a particularly potent frame and one that optically includes a binary choice between environmental protection and not environmental protection. In fact, the Environmental Protection Agency's name itself is one example where the agency seems to be boxed into a unidirectional imperative that constrains the universe of acceptable initial policy positions. Once the EPA, for example, has set its course definitionally in the direction of environmental protection, any move that that same agency or Congress makes that reverses direction becomes opti optically challenged as against the direction of protection. Congress is very sensitive to that delicate dance, making it even more advantageous to engage in the strategic abdication discussed in the outset of these remarks. The complementary forces discussed here ensure that the enlargement of the administrative state far beyond what the framers uh, could have imagined will take place. Congress is self-interested as the framers expected, but it turns out that the self-interest or the self-interest of its individual members do not always coincide with the retention of legislative power and jealous guardianship of their own prerogatives. These conditions have real consequences, not just for the separation of powers, but also for the effectiveness of environmental protection. The entrenchment of existing laws makes environmental laws some of the most difficult to change, despite being an area most in need of and most deserving of regular legislative adjustment. As ambiguities are discovered, as new facts are learned, as new scientific knowledge is gained, as ecosystems themselves change, and as technological understanding and capacity to address problems of all types emerge. If Congress does not act in this space, uh, we will continue to have the ambiguity that plagues us. Thank you. Great. Well, thank you. Um, it's really exciting to be here. And uh, I understand I'm supposed to thank Dean. I don't I really know Dean, but thank you, uh, Dean. Uh, thank you to the Federalist Society. Uh, and thanks to Judge Thapar. I, I, this is, a, I think, a remarkable, remarkably insightful program, Environmental Law Without Congress, or Alternatives to Legislation Eclipsing the Congressional Role. And what I'm going to do is present an alternative conception of environmental law that you all may find both intriguing and disconcerting at the same time. And I'm presenting that thesis in a book with a physicist at Vanderbilt that's coming out in the next couple of weeks. Um, and and it, let me just start uh, sort of where Bob Percival left off and many of our other speakers. Let's see. Um, so there's the, uh, the Internal Revenue Code. 
and the, um, the, uh, the regulations that include EPA, a slide from Michael, Michael uh, Girard at Columbia, and you know, having practiced environmental law at a big corporate firm in DC, I like to say we're number one, right? Uh, uh, so that's the traditional conception of environmental law. It's what I was taught at UVA Law School. It's a subfield of administrative law. And what I'm going to tell you is I think that was true at the time that I took environmental law in the mid-1980s. It's not the case anymore. And that says something really important about what you all are thinking about when it comes to environmental problems and what the alternatives are uh, to the, uh, the approach we've taken so far. So this, to me, is the most important slide that I will show you today. Um, this is the LCV scores for uh, Democrats on the top and Republicans on the bottom uh, over the last quarter century. And what you can see is the reason why the gridlock that every panelist here has essentially referred to occurs. Around 92 to 94, you see this massive gap opening up in voting patterns related to the environment. Now, the public perceptions about the environment didn't change at that time. And so if you're a company or another private institution, you're functioning in an environment where the, env in the environmental issues in Congress are deeply polarized. But the public wants to see some environmental protection. And that's the environment in which you're functioning in. And so this gridlock, I think, tells us something about what's happening in Congress, but it also tells us something very important about the alternatives that have emerged over time. And I've gone around the country, asked dozens of audiences, who did this? They announced a goal to eliminate 20 million metric tons of greenhouse gas emissions. The answers I've gotten, the Obama administration, California, Massachusetts, San Francisco, small island states, Belgium, I've heard it all, right? The right answer, Walmart. Walmart committed with the Environmental Defense Fund to reduce its supply chain emissions by 20 million metric tons within several years, and it far exceeded that, that total. How important is that? That's the equivalent of an EPA regulation that would shut down roughly half of the carbon emissions from the iron and steel industry in the United States. Just more recently, two other environmental groups work with Walmart, and they announced a goal of a billion ton reduction by 2030. That's like one of the top five largest countries in the world going to Paris and saying, we're going to completely go carbon neutral. Okay, that's Walmart. Walmart has more than 10,000 suppliers in China. So that affects Chinese carbon emissions, and that's something we'll get back to in a minute. So, uh, so what's going on here? Um, this isn't just a one-off phenomenon. Right? More than half of the S&P 500 is committed to some kind of a carbon or climate goal. Uh, to imp implement those goals, there are more than 400 companies now that have an internal carbon price. Right? So if you're making a decision within, wall within uh, uh, let's say, Microsoft, you have to account for the carbon implications of your decision within uh, Microsoft itself. Uh, more than 100 companies have committed to go 100% renewable power. In the southeast, where I'm located, that's the principal driver for reducing the carbon intensity of the grid. It's certainly not state government. It's certainly not federal government. It's private action. So what I want to do is take us a step back and say, why is that happening? And what does that polarization tell us about why this phenomenon is occurring? So what we, when I started working in this area, I work with, uh, with postdoctoral fellows in social psychology to try to understand how people think about uh, the environment and, and law. And what we find when I started in this area, I assume that we all started with a blank slate. We saw the world as it is, and we accepted the information that was out there, and then we chose what the right answer was. And that's exactly backwards. We start with a worldview. We do this if we're liberal or conservative. We have a worldview, and then we engage in confirmation bias and motivated reasoning. We pick those facts that fit with our worldview, and we toss out those facts that don't. That phenomenon is a human phenomenon across the political spectrum. 
Okay? So that's the way we actually process information. Why does that matter? Well, between uh, two-thirds and three-quarters of the American population thinks that big government is the biggest problem we face. Right? And this poll is a couple years old, but the numbers now are about two-thirds. Notice it's half of Democrats, too. Right? So why does that matter for environmental policy, in particular for climate change? Well, two Duke psychologists found that uh, people engage in something called solution aversion. If they're averse to the anticipated solution of a problem, they will go back and revise their view about whether that problem exists in the first place. So I would much rather not think, if I think that climate change equals big government, I'd much rather not think it's a climate change problem, and that's what I'll do, right? I'll say the problem doesn't exist because I'm averse to the solution. So the a response that I want to offer you, the alternative, which fits so well with this panel, is what we talk about in our book. What has happened around the country, and that Walmart example is a good example of that, is we're seeing over and over again that private organizations are stepping in to fulfill the kinds of roles that we typically anticipate for government, managing common pool resources, reducing negative externalities. And so what we're seeing over and over again is laws, policies, programs, regulations are now uh, instead being supplemented with, and in some cases potentially displaced by, private initiatives. Examples, 10% of all the fish caught for human consumption in the world are caught subject to a private standard by the Marine Stewardship Council. 15% of all the temperate forests in the world are regulated by a private standard, uh, not by a public standard. Uh, a recent uh, DC lobbyist said that uh, Walmart and Target are now becoming the principal drivers, the principal requirers or regulators of toxics in the United States because of their standards for their suppliers and their products. I did a study and I looked at eight of the most important corporate sectors in the United States and I found that more than half of all the companies in those eight sectors are imposing environmental supply chain contract requirements on their suppliers, right, even though there's no environmental law requirement to do so. And then what does that mean for climate? And I'll wrap up with that. In this book, what we talk about is the idea that it's possible for those of us, and I'm a moderate myself, for those of us who are worried about big government, right, that we can potentially use private sector solutions to reduce by a billion tons a year the greenhouse gas emissions around the world and not solve the problem, that won't do it, uh, but to buy some time. Uh, why might that happen? Well, here's an example. The efficiency gap that's out there might be worth a billion tons of carbon emissions on its own. You might say, well, I'm an economist, I think markets are efficient. If that's true, why, when a leading airline recently brought some University of Chicago economists to the table and studied its pilots, did it find that it had never provided its pilots with fuel economy information, right? And when it did so, it found that the airline reduced costs fuel use and carbon emissions. Why, when the leading ch potato chip manufacturer in England began to study its carbon footprint, did it find that it was buying potatoes by the pound? So if you're a farmer, what do you do? You wait till it's wet, you pick heavy potatoes, you humidify your warehouse, and you ship the heavy potatoes to get more money. That was accounting for a huge percentage of their total carbon footprint and raising uh, their costs as well. In the southeast, as I mentioned, the principal driver for carbon emissions reductions from the electricity sector is private companies, Google, Facebook, Microsoft, coming in saying, we'll open a data center, uh, but we want to see 100% renewable power. They're responding to reputational pressure they get, and maybe 80% of the value of some major companies is reputation at this point. We see that more than $100 trillion is held by investors who are telling companies around the world, we will invest in your stock, but we want to understand what your carbon footprint is and what your plan is to reduce that. A, gr a, le a group of uh, leading lenders have gotten together and say, we will lend to new fossil fuel power plants, but your diligence can't preclude the idea that we might have a regulatory regime in the future, and we want to see how you're going to reduce those emissions. Uh, insurers are starting to 
to say, we will insure your property, but we want to understand uh, what your carbon emissions are. And in some cases, we won't even insure if you're in a business that we think will cause us greater risk in the future. And then lastly, this thing that I mentioned at the beginning, the cross-border effects are incredibly important. I wrote a paper several years ago called The China Problem. What do we do if the U.S. reduces emissions, but China does not? That's obviously a real problem. Well, I mentioned Walmart has more than 10,000 suppliers in China alone. Right? So when it makes a billion ton commitment from its supply chain to reduce its supply chain emissions, it's changing the footprint of China and changing the incentives of the parties that are acting in China about trying to get renewable power. And it's not just Walmart. Here's an example. Apple recently, when it put pressure on its makers of products in China, got pushback saying we have a heavy carbon grid. So it said, okay, we'll build the equivalent of two to four major power plants in China of renewable power so you can sell us low carbon goods. So now we're bypassing the whole international regime and we're doing it through private contractor. It's a complicated scheme. I'm not going to walk through it more. I'd be happy to do that in question and answer. I would just say don't simplify this to simply a matter of are they being pushed by regulation or something else. This is a complicated area. Lots of different pressures would be put on a retailer like a Target, for example, which then puts its pressure on manufacturers and in turn on suppliers. And now we've created an entire regime of private governance regulating carbon emissions. Um, now, you may, uh, having heard all this, be in a place where you think, well, that's fine, but I just don't think this is a problem in the first place, so why am I going to invest in that, uh, in, in that response to climate change? But to me, one of the most valuable things of the kind of a conceptual alternative we've developed is to say, let's think about the private sector as solving problems, not just causing them. And here's an example. Could the government convince most conservatives and libertarians that climate change is happening? I think the data are in. That's not going to happen. People start with a worldview, they see a government report, they reject the information. Could the government do something else? It's very hard to do it. What could the private sector do? If we change that conception and we say, what can the private sector do? Now, all of a sudden, we can say, what if we have a prediction market? Right? What if the private sector produces a prediction market in future climate predictions, global average temperature, sea level? And then you and I, in conversation, could say, let's put our money where our mouth is. And the value of that prediction in the future will signal the likelihood that the market thinks that the climate scientists are alarmist or accurate. That, so that, to me, is just one example of where the private sector can bring innovation even into the basic understanding of the problem itself. So I mentioned at the beginning that, that I might make you a little bit both intrigued and disconcerted. And again, intrigued, I hope, uh, because this is a private response to the climate problem. Disconcerted because it doesn't ignore that there is a problem. But it gives conservatives and libertarians a way to say, I can believe that there is a problem because I can see a solution that I'm not averse to. Happy to take questions on that. Okay, let's, uh, if you have questions, please use the mics. And I ask that you actually ask a question rather than becoming a panelist. My question relates to the use of uh, federal statutes by state regulators to implement result-oriented regulations. Uh, two very brief examples in the Pacific Northwest, uh, the Department of Natural Resources is basically shutting down logging in large parts of Washington State to protect the marbled murrelet in the absence of any scientific evidence that logging actually impacts the marbled murrelet, saying, well, if we don't do this, the feds will come in and take over, and it'll be infinitely worse than if we impose these regulations. Department of Ecology is doing the same thing with drilling of private wells to protect the salmon. They say, well, if we don't do this, the feds will come in. Salmon's endangered. We have to do this. 
Again, there's no scientific evidence that drilling a well actually is bad for the salmon, uh, but they do these things because that's what the environmental groups press them to do. Comments of the on the panel, I'd be interested on this kind of uh, trickle-down effect and what can be done to rein the in Endangered Species Act back to what it was originally intended to do. Go ahead. Yeah, let me just uh, take a, a shot at part of that. If you go back and look at the history, the Endangered Species Act passed in 1973. Then we get the snail darter case where the Supreme Court says, we're going to read the law the way it is. It's absolute. There's no exceptions. And Congress then did respond. First, they adopted the God Squad procedure that allowed exceptions to be made for particularly important projects. And then they later amended the act to allow incidental takes of projects that would affect the critical habitat of endangered species if you have a habitat conservation plan that indicates you're doing everything possible to minimize the damage to the endangered species. So Congress has made the act more flexible and particularly during the Obama administration, there were a lot of administrative efforts to try to reverse the perverse incentive for property owners to destroy what eventually could become the critical habitat of endangered species in the hopes that you wouldn't have your development uh, uh, options restricted. So a lot of work's been doing it. Now, the phenomenon of everyone likes to point the finger at somebody else and say, well, if you don't like what I'm doing, uh, I'm being forced to do it by the feds. Um, the act is such that if something's on the endangered species list and it has been determined on the basis of the best available science that affect, uh, destroying critical habitat would harm the species, you know, then you could potentially have a violation of the act. But you actually have to do something that kills or injures the endangered species for you to uh, be prosecuted under Section 9, and that's why there are not a whole lot of uh, prosecutions under Section 9. Uh, so, you know, I would say, you know, do your homework and, you know, see if the representations that are being made by the state officials are, in fact, accurate that they're being forced to do something by the feds. Because it's, you know, standard bureaucrats are going to want to blame somebody else if people don't like what they're doing. If I could uh, add a couple, I mean, I, I, the point about about both federal and state officials trying to avoid accountability is is, is a true one. It's a, it's a particular problem with the type of cooperative federalism we have under most environmental statutes, and basically, given that we have this overlapping authority in in so many areas, um, both the federal government and the state governments try and essentially pass the buck and and make it seem as if the other is responsible. And it sounds like that's what's happening in this particular case. Um, in the case of the Endangered Species Act, uh, there's, I mean, there's a lot there. I mean, one is there's actually a cert petition pending now on uh, that relates to how uh, aggressively the agency, the federal government, can take actions based on species not yet being present in what could be critical habitat. It's a case out of the Fifth Circuit that, I, if I recall correctly, produced a, an en banc dissent um, by Judge Jones, I think. Um, and so the Supreme Court may give us some clarity there. More broadly, and I suggest, I suspect that Professor Percival and I will disagree on this point, I think the Endangered Species Act is actually the perfect example of a statute that uh, has very laudable goals um, and was enacted with a certain set of assumptions about what would be effective, uh, but that we've learned in the intervening decades that it's not a particularly effective model uh, for ensuring conservation of species. It's also one that, uh, given the way it's structured, obscures 
uh, the difference between scientific determinations and what are ultimately value-based decisions about how precautionary we want to be with interventions for various species. Because we're often talking about situations in which there's a fair amount of uncertainty. There's a species there. It's a rare species. Uh, with many rare species, they're rare because uh, or we don't know a lot about them precisely because they're rare. And so our knowledge of precisely what uh, sorts of habitat modifications could uh, reduce the likelihood of that species survival is not as good as we'd like it to be. And so we're engaged in really a normative, a normative exercise of, of how risk averse we want to be. Right. The language of the act, the operation of the act obscures all that. It also turns out though that especially on private land, the act is incredibly poor at encouraging uh, uh, conservation minded behavior. Uh, and in some cases uh, undermines uh, uh, the incentives for landowners to take conservation measures and, and, and the last three administrations have tried to, to work around the edges of the act to reduce those incentives and this is something that both Democratic and Republican administrations have tried to do but the statute is only, only gives you so much flexibility and when uh, the, the Center for Biological Diversity decides that there's too much land use development in a particular area and they can find a, a, a listed species to use uh, as, uh, as the basis for litigation to slow that development down, they're going to use the act to do that whether or not that is necessarily the, the soundest conservation policy. And yet Congress uh, doesn't really spend much effort to actually try and get to the heart of the problems. And I should just add, lastly, we get lots of ESA reform bills, but they tend to not actually address the, the underlying problems in the act and or these kind of quick fixes uh, for particular interest groups that, that won't really solve the problems. Let's go to the back and then come back here. Thank you. My name is Lawrence Kogan, and I'd like to present uh, a question to Professor Vandenberg concerning his characterization of uh, private standards as enlightened self-interest in a way. Because um, we really need to go back 15 years prior to that when multinational companies were being besieged by the European Union and the United Nations through public disparagement campaigns along with environmental groups and public interest groups. Um, so it really wasn't that corporations went about seeking green solutions to problems on their own. They were actually forced into the situation uh, due to the heavy-handed regulations within the European Union at the time that were setting new uh, heights for uh, unscientific uh, thresholds, known uh, particularly as a precautionary principle, which uh, basically turns empirical science on its head. Uh, but public disparagement campaigns go straight to the heart of goodwill, which takes up 90% or 95%, according to the public accounting firms, of a company's value. So. Uh, my question to you is really, uh, did these companies do it on their own or, I mean, of course they were their first movers. I mean, I remember the term first movers 15 years ago, but I worked in a trade coalition to try to push this stuff back and keep it on the other side of the Atlantic. It came here and companies didn't know what to do. So they used the private standards choice that was available in Europe, which was a lower form of regulation. If you regulate yourself, you might escape the most egregious form of regulation that the European Union, through its commission, would impose on you. And it became palatable here because of the reputation risk. Am I so correct that, in that? The, that analysis, uh, you know, I, I respect your judgment on that. The, your analysis would explain a little bit 
of the movement that's occurred on toxics. It has very little to do with what's happened on climate, fisheries, forests. Oh. And, uh, and let me just say, you know, oddly enough, we're now in a place where I believe markets probably better reflect public preferences than does government. Okay, right? okay, but I would... And I, I'm, a, I'm a moderate, right? And so if what you're suggesting is that what we ought to do is use government to push back on how the market is influencing corporate behavior, then I think you and I have flipped where we might have been 20 years ago. And that's a really remarkable phenomenon. You, you, what we're seeing, let me just say, what we're seeing in our research is enormous efficiencies, profitability being achieved by companies by reducing carbon emissions, which are often associated with inefficiency. And we're also seeing a public marketplace in which companies have to attract and retain millennials right? The best employees, et cetera. And they're not going to do that if they get crosswise with public perceptions about a problem that's out there. So I'm totally with you. I think there's, there is definitely a, a case to be made that, um, that sometimes companies definitely feel coerced. They're not just jumping in in some cases. In other cases, their top management may think it's the right place to put the company. But I don't think that explains anything related to the, not or very much at all related to the climate side in particular. Right, right. But let, let, let's, let's have a rebuttal here. Okay. But the, the, and the rebuttal is. Make it quick. I want to get through. <laughs> no, I, I appreciate that, Your Honor. Um, the, the point here is, is that um, the companies went about to respond to reputation risks. They didn't go out there and pursue uh, necessarily at that point in time what they thought the public response necessarily would be. They were worried about the risk to their reputation. And so if, I would say there's no distinction there. But, but, right? but you're making an equivalency between, you're making an equivalency between, in effect, Tenth Amendment rights, federalism, states' rights are always better, um, and private self-interest is always better. No, I'm not saying that public regulation is necessary. What I'm saying is be in it for the right reason. Don't be disingenuous as a corporation when you start wrapping yourself in the blue flag of the United Nations or the green flag. Actually mean what you're going to report and, and, and otherwise don't report. I mean, that, isn't that the whole idea behind yeah, the sure. Paris Accord? I, I think we would totally agree. And, and what's fascinating, uh, we would totally agree that you know, accuracy and transparency are incredibly important. I would just say that, that uh, winning the war of reputation is what the First Amendment is all about. And so reputation is not indistinct from some other phenomenon. If a company's responding to reputation, that's exactly what we should all want. And if, if a company's right about its views, it should win the, the battle on reputation. And I'm, I'm open uh, to that. I think, let me just say one last thing. You, know, you invoke UN, et cetera. You know, what I'm suggesting is that it might be possible to make enormous gains on the climate problem bypassing the UN process altogether because of the supply chain contracts that run around the world. And I think that's just a really interesting phenomenon. Th that just assumes now. that we agree on what the climate problem well, that's is. That's why we need the prediction our, market, and well, you and I can put our money where our mouth we're is. We're going to agree to disagree. <laughs> Go ahead. Okay. Uh, Richard Belzer. Um, a lot of examples that have come up are cases where Congress uh, didn't give or uh, constrained agencies in ways that presidents of both parties have wanted to do a little differently. There's a counterexample I'd like you to comment on, and that would be the Safe Drinking Water Act. In 1974, when it was first enacted, it directed EPA to set standards that were economically feasible. EPA never defined the term, and of course Congress didn't either. Congress came back in 1986 trying to fix the problem with a new set of, a new statute, and it didn't fix it then either. EPA has, you know, never did uh, define economic feasibility. And then 1996, it came up again, and, and I think that what Congress has done is largely made the act impossible to implement 
Uh, you can't write a drinking water standard anymore because nothing is economically feasible. But now it's because the benefit-cost analysis has to be done accurately. Um, this is an area where the, the, the administration, any administration, has lots of latitude but has failed to take advantage of it for over 40 years. Any comments on that? Um, yeah, I mentioned the act and um, I, I guess I would disagree that uh, we're in a situation where we can't tell what's economically feasible. The 1996 amendments, uh, the original act was designed, okay, we'll have these maximum contaminant level goals that will, as amended in 96, that will be based purely on health. But we recognize that there may be some communities that can't necessarily be extraordinarily uh, uh, expensive for them to do a purely health-based standard so we will consider economics and the cost and whether or not it's going to be cost justified <laughs> those decisions about exactly where you draw the line and how you do it are one of the most difficult that any policymaker has to make so I think it's understandable that Congress wouldn't have a magic solution to it but we certainly have seen you know I think two things one in general, the act has been a terrific success when you compare the quality of our drinking water with that of developing countries. But secondly, there's still real problems. And one of the biggest problems was illustrated by Flint because when they had an issue with lead in the supply lines and the act was based on this notion of just looking at lead in the water that goes into the supply lines, they realized that there may be an awful lot of people with lead poisoning, so they developed this system of let's do sampling, and if more than 10% of the samples come up with a high blood level, you'll have to do something about the pipes. Well, a lot of cities game the system. They knew where the more modern pipes were, and so they adjusted their sampling accordingly, and we now know that you know, Flint was a disaster when they shifted water supply, and EPA is working on you know, how can we improve that. So, it's, it's an ongoing process of lo learning by doing. I think Congress has been sensitive to the notion we don't want to bankrupt these small cities, but we also all enjoy the benefits of being able to go virtually anywhere in the USA, perhaps not Flint, and drink the water out of the tap. Yeah, I would just look really quickly. I think this, this is actually an example of an area where um, of some of the, the phenomena that Professor Cochin was, was talking about. I mean, it's not clear why Congress should have enacted this at all. Certainly not clear why we should have it at all. I know Professor Percival would disagree with that. The empirical evidence we have on things like uh, state-level groundwater protection, uh, absent federal involvement, suggests that states tend to be more aggressive when there's a clearer field. Um, and problems like Flint ex uh, exemplify the problem of what happens when you have overlapping authority. You talk to the special prosecutor who's, who's, who's prosecuting uh, folks for what happened in Flint, and what's very clear is the response of the cities that are doing what, what Professor Percival was talking about would then turn around of challenge and say, hey, we're complying with federal law, so we must be, so what we're doing must be okay. And the feds, you talk to them, say, oh, well, you know, the states and localities, they implement that, so talk to them. And so everyone's passing the buck, and the actual problem doesn't get addressed, and it's an area where if we know that the local folks are responsible for the local conditions, it is much easier to hold them accountable. And there's an increasing amount of empirical evidence that shows whatever might have been in the case in the 1950s, uh, we know in the 21st century that's going to create a dynamic where locals respond to the very real public demand for ensuring the safety and well-being of local residents, and yet we have a statutory structure that's not responsive to that. 
enforces the adoption of rules uh, like the arsenic standard uh, that we saw what, so 15, 20 years ago that in some parts of the country would increase water rates on public systems to the point at which people would unhook from systems and use private wells instead when those private wells would have lower water quality. And when Nebraska sued over